0: Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of KISS Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Now, before starting this week's podcast, I have a couple of quick announcements. This is episode 44 at the time of this recording. It's been an amazing journey and I've met some incredible people. The goal was to really create a platform to help bridge the gap between cannabis cultivation and science. So far, I've done all of this for free, putting in hundreds of hours with the goal of sharing this information and also helping people find out about me and my company. It's been really rewarding. However, due to work demands and financial constraints, I'm reaching out now for two reasons. In order to keep the podcast going for free, I'm adding a Patreon page and also some short ads in the podcast themselves. The Patreon page allows listeners to donate at a monthly tier level starting at only $1, with other tiers offering a monthly private Google Hangout group and even the ability to co-host an episode. If you've learned something from this podcast and want to support it, this is your chance. Go to www.patreon.com backslash to check it out. I'm also going to be adding short sponsorships or advertisements to the podcast itself to help cover the time and costs. I'm going to be really selective, though, about what companies I work with and will only have products and services that I would use in my own personal garden. Thank you for understanding and support of the show. Let's get back to this week's interviews. My guest this week is Eleanor Kuntz. Eleanor is a trained herbalist and geneticist bridging the gap between traditional herbalism and modern science. She is co-founder of Candor. The People's Herbarium, the first herbarium committed to documenting and preserving cannabis cultivars and varietals, along with the collective knowledge gained through community engagement. You can read more about Eleanor's extensive educational and experiential background on the podcast page, as it's more than I can share in this introduction. I was honored to get her on the show to talk about the importance of herbariums and how they relate to cannabis. Hey, Eleanor, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Hey, Todd, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, can we start off giving listeners a little bit of uh, a little bit of a background into sort of your life and how you came to have this role with the uh, with Candor?
1: Yes, uh, my my life has been a walk through a lot of different jobs in the plant world. Um, I started off as a florist in high school, and I've kind of been chasing various realms of the plant world since then. Um, I did my undergraduate degrees in and bi- biology at Smith College and then went on really to do some work, fundamental work on systematics through a really nice internship at Kew Gardens. And that sort of set the stage for my interest in plant taxonomy and plant biodiversity and how that biodiversity is spread across the globe. And from there, I did a lot of kind of odd jobs and things, but then found myself back in graduate school focusing on plant genetics, in particular, plant population genetics, really looking at how populations of plants are influenced by movement, so invasive species biology and how our cultivated plants in particular are affected by movement of weedy sister species um, and pests, so a lot of different things.
0: So you have a bachelor's in biology with a focus in botany, and then Mm -hmm. you also have a PhD, it looks like, too, in, uh, you said, genetics?
1: Yes, I have my PhD in genetics, and my focus has always been on plant systems.
0: Now, in addition to this, you also apparently graduated from the Sage Mountain School of Herbal Studies, so you have a background in herbology, too, is that right?
1: Yes. Um, before I went back to graduate school, I was unsure of exactly the direction I wanted to take, and I took a wonderful little detour into the herbal world in a, in a very focused and pointed way, studying to become a trained herbalist. Um, I really deepened my connection to the plants through that particular educational experience there on Sage Mountain, and Just knowing myself and looking at myself, I realized that my love of the plant and the herbalism world really came from the perspective of the plant. Whereas I I enjoyed the power the plants have to heal us, my particular interest wasn't in helping sick people, but was in helping those plants which help us become well. And so I really started to focus on the health of the, the ecosystems and the plants that we were sourcing for our herbal medicine.
0: Wow, so you have this fascinating background and education level, and from that, it, it sounds like you founded this company called Candor.
1: Yes, yeah, so can yeah, Candor is a nonprofit that we um, started. Um, I actually am mostly spending my day to day running a company called Leafworks, which is a botanical identification company. So we really focus on identifying plants for the natural products world and um, for compliance and, you know, fidelity, not only in packaging and labeling, but also in supply chain security. So are you really buying the plants you think you're buying? And that's where we sort of came to the party um, about five years ago when we were doing a lot of identification and realized that with, um, a lot of our friends and some of my deep family members that had been working in cannabis for a long time, a lot of the tools and reference materials that you would need to really make um, good science happen and to make good identifications happen weren't available for, you know, many, many reasons which we can go into. And so that's how we came to the necessity to found candor really as a landing place to understand the diversity and types that we have within the cannabis community.
0: Okay. So what exactly is a herbarium?
1: So an herbarium is a, re- is a repository. It's a, it's a location and a place that holds collections of preserved plant specimens and then associated data that are linked to those plant specimens. And they're used for mul- of, you know, multiple purpose. Um, The most primary purpose is when you find a new species or develop a new cultivar. An herbarium is the repository by which you would press a sample of that plant, describe that plant, and then that would be used as the reference sample to then move forward with any kind of research. So... You know, if you discover a new species of flower, you're going to make a species description and that species description is going to be linked to at least one preserved plant specimen an herbarium pressing of that plant. And if you are then looking at how that plant is distributed across space, so let's say you're looking at dandelion and it's all across you know, Europe in addition to North America, you can look at how the line differs from place to place based on voucher specimens that have been taken in different areas so there's kind of two levels of utility for an herbarium the most primary is you know defining type and sort of getting everyone on the same page so you know when we say gala apple everyone knows what a gala apple is and how it's different from something like a granny smith you know i'm making that name have meaning in a biological sense um, and then on that second level, we can then see okay, if we grow gala apples in 17 different kinds of environments, how do those environments affect the apple itself?
0: Yeah, so that kind of, you, you kind of answered my next question, which was uh, sort of like how do, when we talk about different chemotype expressions of the same cultivar, which cannabis has shown to ex- be able to express itself quite differently across different environments. Um, what you're what you're doing then if i understand correctly is sort of giving us a context for that conversation by giving us a starting point
1: absolutely absolutely so on that first level just making definitions you know we have individuals that have been stewarding plants and have been doing breeding and have been caretaking particular clones for a very long time and individuals who've worked with specific plants really have an idea of what is the essence of that plant, what is the chemistry, what is the structure, what is the production qualities, what kinds of environments does it excel in? Like we have this knowledge. And so it's really a repository by which we can link that information to a physical representation of that thing. And then we know that if we move that thing from place to place, it does the, you know, the chemistry is going to change um in a lot of ways like the um a lot of the flower color changes right we know a lot of different kinds of cultivars or cannabis types that will express these beautiful purples and pinks if they're exposed to cold temperatures and they won't if you you know grow them indoors in a more even and mild climate so monitoring how those particular taxa or those genets vary across the environment the, the herbarium itself is that physical repository so that we can really catalog how that is occurring and really understand that G by E or that genetic by environmental interaction that gives us that really rich and very sometimes complicated phenotype that we see with cannabis.
0: So what are the legal implications for a grower in terms of preserving genetics? I know um, I'm somewhat familiar with what the OCP or open cannabis project is, is attempting to do on their end with intellectual property. What, what sort mm-hmm. of, uh, I guess, how does, uh, how does an herbarium fit into this whole landscape?
1: Well, an herbarium is actually the most fundamental and basic way in which we do this with plants, right? So when we were describing roses and zinnias and peonies and all of the rich history we have with all of these, these flowers, I mean, you know, we weren't using anything beyond an herbarium and physical descriptions of these plants to really dictate type or dictate, you know, what is a Queen Anne rose, what is a, you know, lady slipper pink tea rose, you know, all of these different kinds of roses. And so the herbarium acts as this very fundamental basic step by which a breeder can define their material, make a physical representation of that material like an actual tangible object that is then linked to a description. Additionally, uh, chemistry or genetics or any other kind of information can be layered on top of that voucher specimen, but the voucher is actually the physical unit that grounds that information in reality. And one of the things that that physical representation does, much like um, in other arenas with legality, it, it offers a point of prior art such that you can actually reference back to type and see if, if it is or is not a unique object. So when you're talking about legal forms, one of the things you really need are arenas in which you have information about, you know, prior art, what is in the community, what already exists so that you can move forward with patenting or refute patenting based on uniqueness.
0: So from a breeder perspective, by getting the, their plant classified, with someone like your your company with an herbarium, they're essentially preserving they're preserving their genetics um and, and allowing them a potentially a way to to defend or refute a patent on that on that yes. final flower. Is that essentially what you're saying?
1: Yes. And it's actually a much more powerful way than using genetics, because of course with genetics, with all of the genetic service genetic services that are out there, they're giving you a panel of SNPs or a very short and small window into the genome in which you're working, which is not an accurate representation of the entirety of the plant. The plant itself is the most complete picture of what you're trying to preserve. And so that becomes the reference point on which all of this additional information can be layered. Um, you know if you imagine you have a hundred thousand base pairs and you're only looking at a hundred of them, it's a very small window into what that genome is, and that can be deceptive in uniqueness and so the herbarium itself you know grounds that in reality within an object that is tangible and real
0: so really, what an herbarium does is it it gives you sort of a historical context like i'm I'm thinking of Linnaeus when you say herbarium, sort of this taxonomy process of identifying, really dating back historically quite far. And uh, that would be sort of the foundation then for which intellectual intellectual property or genetics could then come into play around a particular cultivar.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And I think it's an interesting thing when we talk about cultivar, because in plants, it's, it's, it's a very difficult concept to even wrap my own head around. But Genetics does not define cultivar. It never has. And it's actually a very inappropriate way to define cultivar because we have many cultivars that have disparate genetic backgrounds that are, the, are considered the same cultivar. And so banana is a really good example of this, where the lady finger banana that we grow you know, in many different locations across the globe and is what services our banana intake. Like the bananas we buy at the grocery store is these is this cultivar of banana, you know, in, in the majority. And that particular banana is a cross between two different kinds of banana. And there's a lot of genetic diversity in mom and dad. And it doesn't matter, you know, which individual from those populations you're using, it's the cross itself that makes banana. And so the genetics behind that cross are exceptionally variable. So you have the situation where different genetic backgrounds produce the same cultivar. And then you have the converse example where I know most of us have witnessed this where we have a rose or some kind of plant in our garden where all of a sudden a single sector of that plant will look different it will either have mottled leaves or a red rose will all of a sudden turn into a rose that has white stripes on it. And it'll lo- it'll be located on the same plant. And if you take a cutting of that sector that is different, you know, it's the same genome. It's the same individual. It's almost the most identical you can possibly get. And you can clone that differential sector and call it a new cultivar, right? Because it's different than the parent, even though, the genetics are ninety nine point nine percent the same, and so genetics itself is a very um, is not the most reliable way to define cultivar. Cultivar is this entire picture of a plant, not just its its genetic background.
0: So, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that a different genetic expression of essentially the same genotype with maybe just one small mutation would create a whole new cultivar. And so yes, in your second example. So I'm just trying to wrap my brain around all of this because you're throwing a lot of information out. Um, So all that being said, essentially what you're saying is that a cultivar is not, a cultivar is not its genetic makeup in in whole. Totally. so yeah. there's more to it than that.
1: Mm-hmm. There's much more to it than that. And the cultivars is, is driven by human selection and human definition, which is why the mission of the herbarium is so much founded. in the mission of candor. It's really founded in taking the knowledge from the community to define the cultivars that they've been stewarding because they know those plants better than anybody else. And genetics alone are not the units that define what those cultivars are. And in the context of cannabis, I'm sure we can all think of certain plants, you know, are going to be clone only. You know, there's only one harlequin. And if you want harlequin, you have to have a cutting of that plant to have that cultivar. But then there are other plants where, you know, it's a, it's a cross. It's a, a certain cross that happens over and over. And the exact genetic background of that cross isn't what's important, but it's who's the mom and who's the dad. And how that cross plays out within that seed stock becomes the cultivar.
0: So it's tricky. Yeah, well, cannabis is this, <laughs> it's this beautiful mess of diversity in genetics right now, I feel like, and we don't have any idea really what, what we have as an industry. And I think we, I think we're in desperate need of some classifications in a lot of ways, because even, even the known genetics that are out there, uh, you know, people are constantly breeding They're We're getting new expressions of those genetics. Uh, we're losing genetics all the time, um, so something like this would just, would be a way to, to take sort of a, a snapshot of one particular, are, are you calling them cultivars then? Is that the best nomenclature when talking about this?
1: Yeah, I'm a plant biologist. So I default to that because for me, um, that is what you call a plant type. <laughs> so I, I call them cultivars. I know that the the community itself really likes the word strain. For me, that's a microbiological organism. So I, I have a hard time calling a plant that. Um, But I think we're all talking about the same thing, those units that hold together as, um, you know, an essence of a thing. You know, when we say ChemDog, we know what we're talking about. When we see Harlequin, we know what we're talking about. And, you know, and the diversity that is surrounded in that name, I think, really is the community's job to come to that assessment.
0: Okay, so can you explain to me how Candor might help the cannabis community sort of document this biodiversity that they're holding on to?
1: Absolutely. So right now we're we're really pushing with our our breeder allies and our breeder friends who've been doing um, a bulk of you know bulk of the work to really generate new types and then also distribute those types to differential farmers. You know, so where those those units are being developed um, is our first entry into definition. And so working with them to define their plants, make vouchers, and then really follow those types through the community and different growing arenas, you can you can track not only the, the sort of gold standard of what that cultivar is, but then how growing it amongst different farmers affects the type and the herbarium itself becomes the resource by which we can sort of hold that information as a community and learn where those boundaries are and how, you know, we do get this diversity when we grow things in different areas, but the herbarium itself is exactly as you put it, it's the container that holds that information so that we can do not only um, good science, but also have n- names and titles that make sense and are grounded in the history of what's happened with those plants.
0: So can you take me through the process of how a grower would, would work with, with Candor, with this herbarium?
1: Absolutely. So we um, visit farms and right now we're visiting a lot of mother rooms and we're taking um, cultivar intake would include um, taking a vegetative cutting of about 10 to 12 inches of the plant and then physically pressing that vegetative cutting. Um, It's um, done in this very special cotton paper that's going to preserve that plant for a very long time. You mentioned Linnaeus um, earlier and he's actually the human that did the type specimen for cannabis and that pressing we actually have up on our instagram and we'll probably repost it in a bit because it's a beautiful example of an herbarium pressing but that's exactly what we do we take a vegetative pressing and then we'll also take a early flowering pressing so nothing you know you can't Once they're big, glorious colas, you know, it's pretty hard to get them into a two-dimensional form. But, you know, that early flowering, so you can see flower color, internodal spacing, any of the important morphological characteristics that would really define the type. And we'll make a pressing of that as well. Um, If we have individuals or certain breeders that we're working on, like is a very um, active participant in the herbarium right now. um, And working with Candor, a lot of his seeds are... Mother, you know, specific mothers crosses specific fathers. And so in that case, we'll take pressings, herbarium vouchers of both the mother and the father, and then a panel of the, of the F1s that are consistently produced from that cross as the definition of type. And so whenever we can, we also include that pedigree history to just preserve the entire lineage of the plant so we have a deeper understanding of where that plant comes from and how that plant holds together as a unit. Once those pressings are made, the breeder themselves will fill out some informational forms about it, Um, you know, sort of basic stuff, their um, flower color, spacing structure, you know, all those characteristics about that plant that define who that individual is.
0: So there's some authorship in there too. So you mentioned uh, Subcool, I think. And so it would it would be his name on that page associated with that particular flower?
1: Yes. Yep. And then we have certain individuals, you know, that are stewarding plants and it's, you know, maybe the original breeder has since passed or maybe it's been held in community so long, it's really hard to, to tag who is the quote owner. And we have, a, you know, these are plants. This is a very typical thing. We carry our plants with us. And so it's almost an odd thing to assign ownership to plants. But with those individuals that have a more um historical presence in the community, what you basically are doing are offering stewardship. And so you might not be saying, This is my plant, but you're saying I have stewarded this plant since 82. This is where I got this plant. This is the history of this plant. This is who you know, so you can corroborate type in that way too, in a historical framework where, you know, whoever is donating that voucher is assigned, you know, is is signing their name that they're donating it. But then, you know, that doesn't have to be the original breeder. It can be someone who's really just worked to steward the plant as well.
0: Okay. And so what is the cost associated with something like this?
1: Oh, goodness. Well, right now we are all user... Input, so there is no initial upfront cost to donate vouchers um, to the herbarium. The herbarium itself is a resource that is open to anyone who wants to contribute and the work is done by that individual to make that contribution, and we facilitate that work at the herbarium. There is no auxiliary cost um, Right now, in structuring sort of databasing and things to make the information more accessible, there will probably be a membership fee, but that will come once we have a platform to really share that with, so we can you know, open it up to the community to have a little more access. Right now, it's really about amassing that fundamental information from that you know, voucher, that like breeder level, to really have a running start to get the, you know, the resource to a point where it has a lot of utility for the, the greater community.
0: So you're, you're right now, you're in the stage of collecting samples, it sounds like. And uh, what is the end goal of the herbarium then once you have sort of amassed this, this huge library of, uh, of genetics in this form?
1: The end goal is really to have a resource by which that we can have cult of our conventions and have, you know, select panels of people who've been working with these plants or who are the original breeders really come to the table and make cult of our conventions such that we can move the the community itself can move their own their own naming system forward and really be in control of that. Um, much like, you know, the Westminster Abbey dog show does for dogs or canines where there's judgment about you know, who's best in show, who's best in each class of dog breeds. It's kind of the same thing that we're trying to grow the structure around so that the community can do the same kind of work where we have, you know, our different breeds or our different cultivars in, in units such that everyone has some basic agreement. Okay, getting everyone to agree is always a challenge, but getting to the point where we at least have classes of, you know, what, what are hazes, what are our cush types, what are, you know, all of these different groups. And then that resource itself can be the functional tool to solve maybe disputes or to really come to terms with what is appropriate. You know, it's, it's, it's much easier to have an argument or move a discussion forward when you have something to point to, something to reference. And so the herbarium wants to act as that touch to move the conversation forward in a productive way based on real things as opposed to your sand story.
0: So you mentioned hazes. So let's let's use that as an example. So in theory, if you had say five hundred or a thousand samples of various hazes, you could then take an unknown cultivar or unknown sample and compare it to that and say, oh, this is this is of Hayes ancestry, most likely based on these morphological characteristics like internode spacing, or leaf shape, or growth habit, or, or that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely, that's exactly what you do. And you know, the more historical Hayes accessions that you have, or vouchers that you have that link back to particular breeders and particular collectives then you can go on and do exactly what you say, take an unknown and then compare it to really figure out how does it fit into that context, you know, into that framework. Is it, is it a member of that group or not?
0: Yeah. So I see, I see this as being really fascinating and I think it's something I w- that would be wonderful to look at in a museum, especially um, getting to see all of these different samples throughout various generations and uh, just the, how many different ways this plant has been bred and expressed. I still don't feel like I have a complete grasp, though, of how this how this relates to breeders in relation to intellectual property, because I know that's a huge concern right now um, in terms of preserving genetics, either from the perspective of profiting off those genetics or from the perspective of sharing those genetics, like what the OCP is attempting to do. How how does that relate? Because it's still a little confusing to me.
1: Yeah. So the OCP is really focusing on data. So the problem with data is that data ownership is not truly linked to the individual that generates the data. For example, any one of us can go to a dispensary and buy any number of plants in the form of flower and sequence them. That does not mean that any of us own those plants, right? We've, it's just like if I went to the grocery store and bought a gala apple and I sequenced gala apple doesn't mean I own Gala Apple. And so the amount of sequence data in the general, you know, that's deposited on GenBank or NCBI through the Open Cannabis Project or whatever gives information to individuals about the diversity of cannabis that's out there, but it does nothing to link genetics to tangible plants. There's no reference point. So if... I w- just to take a step back, as a scientist, if I'm going to go and study echinacea, the first thing I'm going to do if I want to make some kind of assessments about the genetics of echinacea, is I'm going to go to an herbarium and get a bunch of different echinacea vouchers from you know the eight most prevalent species of echinacea that are in my area and I'm going to use those tangible voucher specimens as my reference point for the science I'm doing. And that's what's missing is the tangible reference point that links abstract data, which is genetic ACPG kind of data to a real living organism. And so that's, that's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to incur genetic um, or, you know, IP but having the genetic data linked to a real plant is, is a fundamental importance to generate IP because without the ownership of the plant, like genetic data is just genetic data. Anyone can generate that. Does that answer your question at all?
0: I think so. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it. So it's a little confusing in my head (laughs) no matter what, but essentially if I understand you correctly, um, what you're saying is there needs to be a link between what we're getting as, from a lab analysis and then the actual physical plant itself. So what I'm trying to figure out is if I'm, if I'm a breeder and I want to preserve these genetics uh, from, let's say, let's say purely a financial perspective. Let's say I want to profit off of these genetics because I've created a plant that has these characteristics or this particular uh, genotype. Mm-hmm. How does I guess, how does the OCP fit in? And then how does Candor fit in? What, what's sort of the differences there? And what, what's the importance?
1: Well, Candor is going to be the location where you would physically define that plant and then make your, your physical pressings of that plant to define type. And then from that point on, any, any definition that, you know, and, and the individual breeder who's making that accession is going to keep copies of those vouchers as well, right? So if I make it, let's say you have made, um, you know, purple cherry drop number two, that's your new plant. You're going you're gonna to make a voucher. I'm going to keep one as the herbarium. It's going to be held in posterity as a reference point. And then you're also going to keep that voucher for yourself. And then as these vouchers build up, it becomes a resource to the patent office. So when they are looking for definitions of type to see is this a unique and plant, I am not a lawyer. And so the intricacies of plant patenting is exceptionally difficult and it is very difficult to patent a plant. Um, Normally to patent a plant, you have to genetically modify it. Um, If you want to get a varietal patent. So That's the difference between a cultivar and a variety. A variety is just a flavor of cultivar that has a legal framework around it, like gala or um, Arctic apple um, would be a genetically modified variety. And so it's, it's actually very difficult to patent a plant itself, but if you wanted to define that cultivar, the physical representation is your first step. And then if you're going to do any kind of genetic or chemistry, you would layer that on top of that physical voucher as, you know, definitive of that voucher, right? Because you can have two very different plants that if you're just, uh, if you're just looking at chemistry, can come up the same, you know, and it doesn't mean that those plants are the same just because the, the handful of 10 chemicals you're looking at in a, you know, pantheon of 500 chemicals happens to be similar. So the OCP is really, from my understanding, really amassing data such that there's more information in the academic community to really get at diversity and um, you know those types of questions.
0: Well, I'll, I'll have to get Beth on the show here to sort of explain a little more about the OCP. So I won't, <laughs> I won't expect you to explain about another program, uh, but I, I do think that's really interesting. So. You've mentioned, uh, apples, you know, I would just, I would say, let's stick with that example, maybe with a Honeycrisp apple, for example. So if I created Honeycrisp, you know, I would then go to an apple herbarium and give them, get a pressing or a voucher of that Honeycrisp apple. And then from there, would I also go and get the genetics done on an apple? And at that point, would I own that particular IP or how does that work? I guess it's not really IP at that point.
1: Yeah. So what you would do is you would really, so yeah. So the peony society has a really good form. You can Google peony society and they have new varietal submission or new cultivar submission. And basically what you do is you would describe that apple. You would describe why it is different. What are the unique attributes of that apple? So, you know, it might be sugar content, it might be, um, time to flower. It might be height of the tree. You know, if it's not a grafted apple, which most of them are, um, you know, it might be um of course um, flavor profile, color of the skin, um shelf life, time um time to ripening. All of these characteristics would be included in that definition. And then your consortium or your, your group, so for peonies it's a peony society. For apples, I'm sure they have their own society. And they would make a judgment: Is this a unique thing that deserves a title in and of itself? Right? Does it deserve to be a named thing that is unique and different from the rest of the cultivars that we have in that apple, you know, in that apple group? And if it's deemed to be unique, then it would have its own name assigned to it, and those definitions would then be attached to that name. Um, there is no need to do genetics. Genetics has never, in the history of cultivars, been a defin a defining like the way you define something. I mean, genetics is really modern and cultivars and the concept of cultivars is really old. So it's kind of a, we're in an interesting place in time where we are using modern technologies for things. Um, It's kind of overkill in a lot of ways. Um, And not just, I mean, I'm a geneticist. It's not to poo-poo genetics. Genetics are amazing and powerful and we can learn all kinds of things from genetics but they aren't the primary tool to do this work.
0: And they never have been. So from an ownership or property perspective, an herbarium makes a lot more sense.
1: So I say, yeah, it makes a lot more sense, especially as a first pass, because it's um, very, very basic, and it is very uh, attainable for anyone. There's no big cost, there's no special equipment, there's no relying on anyone else's analysis or data panel, you know, marker set. Um, It is very, very straightforward. This is my plant, I'm gonna vouch for it. And then any of those other technologies that you may feel are beneficial to additionally describe your material, just add, you know, it's just like icing on that cake, just adds to your definition.
0: That makes more sense. So you're the foundation. And then having other things like the ge- genetic makeup and the genotype of that plant and even it's, maybe even its chemotype expression would be more assertions to support your ownership of this unique cultivar.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And with genetics, I mean, most of the time, like to get ownership of plant material, you actually have to physically change the genetics of the plant. And most of our breeders aren't doing that. We're not using modern genetic techniques to, in, in, in most of our classic community breeding to do that. And so I think that there's also like a little bit of um, false hope that genetics gives to people of surrounding ownership that isn't completely based in reality.
0: Okay, so just thinking this through, what's to prevent someone from bringing a cult to you? That maybe they did not breed themselves. Maybe it originally was a haze or a blueberry or, or something like that. And then claiming authorship of it because they were the first ones to get it into whatever accepted herbarium becomes you know, conventional standard for the industry.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. That question kind of persists over any of these um, ownership modalities, is it the first to file? Is it the first to sequence? I mean, all of these issues are very much the same. The beauty of the herbarium is because it is a community-run resource, those accessions, those inputs are vetted against the panel and the entire group of inputs, right? So if we look like Hayes, for example, or Chemdog maybe is a better example. You know, if you have someone who's submitting something and they're calling it, you know, a, by a certain name, and we are comparing it to another thing with the same name, you then look to history and the community knowledge of that plant to make the decision about which type is actually accurate. You know, and I am very much not the person to make that decision. Just like I don't think, you know, anyone in the genetics community, I don't think it's their job to make that decision. I think it really is the community itself coming together and arguing or whatever it is to come to consensus about where these plants come from and what plants are what. And the nice thing about the herbarium is those those accessions remain and then you can come back to them and have dialogue about what is real and what is not based on tangible pieces of evidence and tangible units. So I see it being much like the American Kennel Club model, where you have a group of individuals that have been breeding dogs for a long time, and you have consensus about what is a terrier type. You know, and if you're going to come to them at the AKC and say, I've bred a new breed of dog, you have that entire group that you have to then interact with and justify why this particular group of, of crosses in, in your dogs justifies becoming a new breed. And so in the same thing in the plant world, you know, if you have someone coming and saying this is, you know, the original haze and it just doesn't match up with the other 10, ex- you know, accessions of haze, then you start looking at your, you know, we have partners that do the historical aspect, like the 420 archive is a partner for us or a collaborator, where then, you know, the historical context and the stories and the history of those plants come in to really help parse out what's real and what's not real. It's not easy. And then there's no straightforward answer to that question.
0: No, I really liked, I really liked that answer. I thought, I thought you really captured it. And I think the the dog breeding example really sort of solidified in my head exactly what you're describing there with a new breed or a new cultivar. So it, it sounds like everyone who has a plant that they think is special or that has unique origins, they really should be reaching out to you to contact you. Yeah. Um, which I want to, I want to give you the, have you give out that information. But before I do, I didn't want to forget. One question I had is you keep mentioning the word voucher. Can you talk a little bit about what a voucher exactly entails?
1: Yes. Um a voucher is like the gold standard of the type. And so if I've made a new a new cultivar, the, that voucher is the collection of both the vegetative pressing and the early flowering pressing in concert within any of that additional information that goes along to describe that that flower. That entire packet or that entire unit would be considered the voucher of that haze or of that 10 dog or you know of that cherry pie number 10 whatever it is Um, so the voucher is just that gold standard thing that once we've come to a consensus this is the plant that we're you know the name and the plant have become solidified that voucher is the sort of gold standard by which we can compare other things to it to see are they or are they not that thing
0: so you're keeping the physical you're taking one sample pressing that and that's the physical sample that stays with the herbarium but then i assume you're creating a sort of a replication i'm I'm picturing like a color piece of paper like a, a color printed version of this that then would be considered the voucher is that right
1: yeah so the the voucher is actually the physical plant and then those are digitized and they're beautiful i mean It's just amazing. I mean, they're gorgeous. The physical pressings of these plants, if you weren't in love with cannabis already, this will make you just love them even more because, you know, they're art. And that physical pressing then becomes digitized and then the voucher of haze would then be that gold standard. And then let's say that I'm growing in an indoor grow in Southern California and you're growing outdoors in Humboldt, we could then each donate to the herbarium field accession, so a, a version of this plant grown in the field. So I'm not saying I'm the original breeder. I'm just saying, I know I'm growing this plant, and I'm growing it in this environment. And then you add to the panel of information that really surrounds that GYE, like how do those plants interact with their environment to have that flexible phenotype that we see so often in cannabis. So then that would be the, the, the field level, the field accession. And then all of those also become digitized to become a resource for the community that is contributing to the project.
0: So if someone wanted to get a voucher of ChemDog, for example, from the herbarium down the road, uh, that would be a digital copy that they would be receiving. It's not a physical thing that you have to keep this tissue.
1: Yeah. So. So what you would do is you, the, the voucher itself lives in the herbarium. And if you have reason to need to vet your material, then you would use the voucher as the reference point, but you wouldn't actually get the voucher. You know, you'd be using it as your reference point, much like you would for the you know, science. I'm like, if I'm going to the Smithsonian looking for those echinacea vouchers, because I want to do a project looking at, you know, spatial differentiation and, you know, echinacea across, you know, the prairie. Um, They're not going to physically give me those samples. They may give me what I need, um, whether it's a reference point to go back to or if I'm doing chemistry, they can give me some chemistry profiling, or if it's genetics, they can give me some genetic profiling so that I can make sure that I'm looking at what I think I'm looking at based on that voucher that they're holding. So the voucher itself lives in the herbarium and is digitized.
0: So all of this data, once you have collected a sufficient amount is this something that's going to be published online or is going to be publicly available down the road?
1: And no it will not be publicly available at the moment it is a hundred percent for the community itself So if you are a contributing member of the herbarium, you have access to the resources of the herbarium. And that's really important it's it's not for us to you know sell to any other outside Group. That's not the point. The point here is to really make definitions for and about and by the community such that they can own their material and they can leverage the information that they're collectively gathering through the repository of the herbarium itself.
0: Okay, so if I donate material, would I have access then specifically to just my material or would I have access to other material in the herbarium that relates to my donation?
1: Yeah, so you, if you, um, are giving a voucher of a particular type, then you have access to the voucher set, like all of the vouchers that are in the herbarium. If you are give, if you're a farmer in Mendo and you're growing um, in that area and you are contributing field accessions, like these are the plants I'm growing and I'm gonna give you these accessions in my fields, then you have access to the Mendocino herbarium to really understand how those plants are expressing themselves within your area so that you can utilize the resource that you are contributing to.
0: Okay. So this really is a community resource in a sense, even though it's yes. not a public resource. I just, I want to clarify yeah. that because, yeah. um, if people are giving you essentially this, you know, these genetics or this, this data, um, just finding out sort of what the long-term goals for that data is and the mission of your, you know, of your nonprofit, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, the mission is really to help the community define their own cultivars so that they have the power to not only maintain access to those cultivars, but, you know, own those plants and the the names and the history of those plants. Any other, you know, all of our partnerships that would surround, um, you know, chemistry partnerships or genetic partnerships would really be only... Done in alignment of defining cultivar types, so that those individuals donating those types have ownership of those types so there's no there's no you know the herbarium is not is not set up to do any you know we don't have the financial prowess to you know genotype all these things or chemically analyze all these things. all of those bits of information would come from the breeders and the cultivators themselves. Submitting that information to support the cultivar definitions that they're defining.
0: So essentially, what you're saying is, they're not you're not giving up any ownership of your plant by sharing this and creating a voucher. But what you are doing is sort of adding to the richness and history of this plant and preserving, essentially, doing the opposite. Essentially, preserving your um, your property and or your you know, what the work that you've done in this greater, you know, semi-public forum of, or collective.
1: Yes. And you're actually, yeah. And you're actually increasing your legitimacy of ownership because you have a third party herbarium that's holding the material that actually defines your type. And so it's actually a, a very effective way to create precedent and ownership precedent that is linked to you as the owner of that material. So if anything, it actually contributes to the lineage of ownership by contributing. You know, it, it's, it sets a stake in the sand. You know, I've had this plant, and this is the plant, and this is how it's defined, and it's mine. Like, the, the passing of that ownership is not, is not anything but solidified. Like, it's, it's only solidified for that individual by making a contribution.
0: Well, this sounds wonderful. It sounds like something everyone should do. Um, how do people do this though, if they're not located near you? Um, yeah. You know, how how do we deal with state lines and and other challenges like that around around getting into the herbarium?
1: Well, this is real grassroots. So um, we've actually got herbariums scattered everywhere. We've got a uh, herbarium in New England. We have, you know, many across the state of California. We've got some talks with people who are willing to house herbariums up in Oregon and Washington. And so the state line issue will become hopefully knock on wood, less of a problem as we march forward into sanity with um, our government. Um, But as it is now, the vouchering process is happening everywhere. And local herbariums are working to house that material so that the entirety of the community can really reach in and dig into this resource and utilize it as a collective. So right now, um, we're running around to a lot of different places. We're having press parties and different things where people can come together and start vouchering their plants in a very social um, environment. We have a lot of farm meetings set up, and, t- and we're touring around, in particular, Northern California and the, the Northwest at the moment. And so it's really contacting us and figuring out when we'll be in your area and how we can connect because you know state lines are really fake in the trade of a plant so giving everyone access um, as much as we possibly can right now is a huge priority
0: great so i'm going to post links and information on the podcast page but can you go ahead and just tell people where to find you and how if i'm a grower how i could go about getting getting my plants into the herbarium
1: Absolutely. Our website is candor.org, C-A-N-N-D-O-R.org. And our Instagram handle is just candor herbarium. And either way, Instagram is a really great way to get a hold of us. And we announce a lot of our travels and where we're going to be on um, the Instagram. But both of those media um, outlets are quick and easy ways to get a hold of us.
0: Great. Well, thanks for your time today and for explaining a little more about this. It sounds like a wonderful program, uh, what you guys are doing. So thank you for your work. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to share with uh, podcast listeners before signing off?
1: Oh, my goodness. It's just been so fun to talk about this. It's such a lovely space to be able to to talk about science um, and the fun, kind of cool aspects of what's going on in the scientific community and how it intersects with all this wonderful history and just love of of plants. So it's super exciting. So thanks for taking the time to listen to what we're doing and, yeah, motivating us to continue on with the, the work.
0: Hey, guys. So the end of this podcast is a little different than normal. After signing off, I continued to chat with Eleanor and learn more about candor and herbariums. I thought what she shared off air was valuable and really solidified my understanding, so i'm including it as bonus material at the end of this podcast yeah i'm I'm interested to see you know how much it's so hard to get momentum around anything um, mm-hmm. you know like I'm thinking about certifications like trying to get an organic certification for cannabis has been such a challenge, and I kind of see this falling into the same category there of just if you can get enough people around to create enough momentum to hit that tipping point, then it could be, it could really be this amazing thing. Not that it's not amazing already, but.
1: um... No, no. The snowball needs to get bigger to roll down by itself. Right. Like that's definitely true. And that's why it's, it's just been such a lovely time in this last year to we've really been connecting with a lot of those, you know, the breeders that are really selling a lot of the propagules in the market Mm -hmm. It's just a really good entry point in doing that because those are the places where farmers are getting the material if they're not generating their own material. And so that's a really good layer to start with. And then from that, you get a lot of the more hometown, home, home cultivated material starting to come and people starting to get interested in realizing, oh, what I have is unique and different. And, you know, we had this renaissance in the, you know, Victorian era with breeding of roses know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not much different it's really the same and it's really just harnessing the love of that plant um, as a community and then moving that forward so
0: do you, do you think potentially we're setting ourselves up though down the road for at least maybe not so much me but maybe with you with the, like a big legal fight with two growers or even a corporations getting involved just because this industry is worth so much money this isn't podcast stuff by the way. I'm just curious like
1: <laughs> It's almost impo- like unless you're unless you're genetically modifying a plant, it's almost impossible to get a plant patent because you can't patent life and I think most of us agree with that statement. You know, we don't want to patent plants in general like that's ludicrous. And so <laughs>
0: But we have plants like, for example, I, so I I have an edible nursery. We had a plant that came on the market a few years ago called raspberry shortcake. And Monrovia was the one selling it. It was part of this brazzleberry series. And it's this thornless uh, container raspberry that's self-fertile. It was an awesome plant. And yeah. you're not allowed to propagate that plant legally. I mean, in theory, I could. But legally, you're not allowed to do that. They own the rights to that plant. How does that happen? Or like... Because
1: that's a varietal patent. So they have a varietal patent on that plant, and that's because the thornless trait... So this is a great example of that. It's the same plant as the next-door neighbor. It just got a mutation in it, so it no longer produces thorns. But everywhere else in the genome, it's probably exactly the same as the mother plant. And so because of that, because it's unique and different enough, you can get a varietal patent. But a varietal patent is a lot like a... um, what is it? Oh, like a pharmaceutical patent. They're only for a certain amount of time. And it doesn't say that I can't grow that plant. It just says I can't sell propagules.
0: Okay. So I could, in theory, propagate it. I just can't make money off of that.
1: Exactly. And that's because it's it's it has a varietal patent associated with it. And so that's a lot like all of the... um You know, like, there's a really great example of like blushing beauty... um pretentia in Swedish. What is it in English? Those like big um, hydrangeas. So blushing beauty hydrangea. doesn't matter how much acid you put on the soil. You know, hydrangeas turn blue if they're in acidic soil. This one, there's something wrong with a gene that makes it blue. So it doesn't matter how acidic your sol- your soil is, that hydrangea will always be pink. And so they have a varietal patent and it's called blushing beauty. And like Lowe's has an exclusive right to sell the plant. Okay. And, you know, that is, I think they're 15 year patents. do like 15 year protections and they're not patents in like on the plant. It's a varietal patent. It's the name associated with the type associated with the ability to sell the propagule.
0: Huh? So how do we end up with seed stock then? I, I get what you're saying, but I'm wondering too, like, you know, every year I go out and buy Sakura red tomatoes or, um, you know, whatever variety of tomato seed that is, someone's making a royalty on that who created that original.
1: Yeah, because they have a ver. It's a varietal patent, and I think it's like kind of a semantic thing, but it's not because a patent on a pl- like you can get a patent on a plant such that no one can do anything with that plant if it's a GMO plant, but if it's a variety, like either naturally occurring or based on selection that patent, that like burpee and all of the seeds and like silver queen corn and all of this stuff. The reason why they have varietal patents, well, they have varietal patents and so you can only buy the seeds from them, but those only are a certain breadth of time for which those varietal patents are valid. And then after that, they're kind of like in the the genetic germplasm of the community and you can't have ownership anymore. And it also doesn't mean that I can't breed with that thing and change it and make it different. It just means I can't sell that particular tomato.
0: Oh, but if I took it and bred it with another tomato, they, the original person wouldn't have ownership over it.
1: It would be different, right?
0: Oh, I just want cause like when I was at the Emerald cup this year, there was a huge line for one particular breeder seeds and he was making a killing on selling the seeds but then I was—it got me wondering, like, if he has a plant that's considered so valuable to this community um, that they're willing to wait in line for five hours just for the seeds, because it's the latest and the greatest. Um, what other value does that plant have, and what is he giving up by, you know, selling his seeds or essentially sharing these genetics? And that's kind of what got me thinking about all this.
1: Yeah. And I mean, and then there's the Coke model, right? Where you don't ever give up that recipe or you never give that clone out. You grow it in-house and you only sell the products because you don't ever, and you held it as a trade secret. That's actually the way to hold IP more tightly than any other way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Huh. It's just not to let it out, but it's hard to get traction because you've got to be able to make a market and supply the market without letting it out. Yeah. Yeah. And plants are just weird. And like plant IP, like, my God, please have a plant patent attorney on your podcast. I mean, that's the person to really ask because it is not easy or straightforward. And there are different rules, whether you are genetically modifying a plant as to what you can do as compared to if you're just doing like normal selections from populations of naturally occurring plants.
0: So do you think that basically what's going to happen is all of these legal nuances won't come out until it actually becomes a case like an actual case and then we're going to see what what the law really is around this stuff
1: i think i think that is definitely going to happen and i think that having resources like the open cannabis project with just like data dumping and the herbarium where you have physical repositories of plants that are defined well then all of a sudden their importance is going to really come up when the pto has to say oh we didn't look at all of the all of the prior art that's out there, nor do we understand it. That's one thing that I get told repeatedly with patent lawyers, who are you know in conversation with us about how can we utilize the herbarium in our patent searches. Mm-hmm. Is that they don't even know where the resources are to know how to analyze the patent. Right, like that's a bad situation to be in when the patent examiners don't even know where to look to know how to approach the patent.
0: Just because nothing exists currently on it. Yep. It's a whole, because it's a whole new market. Yeah. They won't just use the framework from other agricultural crops or industries.
1: Well, the problem is the frameworks for other industries say, look at the herbarium, look at the society that is in charge of definitions. And we don't have that.
0: Oh, and so you're trying to create that. Yeah. Got it. That makes more sense to me. (laughs) Sorry.
1: Yeah. And the community itself should be in charge, right? It shouldn't be all these genetic companies that are saying, oh, we're defining groups. It's like, yeah, but you're defining, this is how I look at it. They're defining groups based on going to the dog pound and sequencing every dog in the pound. And it's like, well, that's making an assumption that all the dogs in the pound are purebred and you're making types based on those. And that's not true. 99% of those dogs are mutts. And so you're kind of confounding the issue by doing that. And you're actually making a lot of false data, which is not helpful to anyone.
0: So with enough samples and enough vouchers, we'll have the, the community will have a concept for what the actual genetic lines look like and what, what you're like, essentially what a purebred plant or, or dog would look like in your example.
1: Absolutely. And then if we have arguments about it, you have reference material to go back to to actually answer questions based on data as opposed to hand waving and, you know, non-data.
0: Okay, that makes so you much know, more if sense If you have to me. a question
1: about Haze, all of a sudden you can say, okay, these are a thousand Haze examples that we have. Out of these thousand, these hundred come from vetted sources. Or these 100 are corroborated based on more than one, one line of evidence. And then you can, you know, you can tier data. You can structure questions to answer them correctly. But you can't do that without a resource. You can't, you can't do good science without tools. And this is just another tool to do that.
0: That was Eleanor Kutz, co-founder of Candor, the People's Herbarium. I posted a ton of links and information relating to this podcast right on the podcast page at www.kisorganics.com. Just click on the podcast menu on the top of the home screen. And if you can, please support us on the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Even a dollar or two helps. Stay tuned for our next episode where we catch up with Michael Bowman, also known as Mr. Hemp co-author of the 2014 Farm Bill to learn what's in store for hemp in 2019. Thanks for listening.